Todd Lawson and his brother Sean planned to meet in Africa. It was to be a four-month trip in which the brothers would travel together for the first time. And the last time. In what Todd would say afterwards was having the epic high of highs of his life on ultimate freedom riding through southern Africa with his brother to the depths of despair and guilt. This is his story. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Young Sam Manicet, Simon Bates, Simon Baby, Helga Pedersen, Charlie Borman, Chris Birch, Elizabeth Martin, Whitney Smith, Dana Smith, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. CyclePump.com. My name is Todd Lawson. I am from Whistler, British Columbia, and uh, I am a magazine publisher and a first-time author. Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you so much, Jim. Sean Lawson was your older brother. Now, can you start by talking about what it was like growing up with Sean? Yeah, yeah good question to start. Uh, it was <laughs> it was definitely eventful. Um, Sean was a character. He was kind of a larger than life dude. He really kind of loved to make people laugh. He loved to get out there. He was, he was really like, he was into skiing and then he, he just kind of flew himself full force at skiing and he was, he was a ski bum and he was into that. And whether he was working or hanging out with his friends or just doing whatever, he was quite an animated character. And he, like I said, he loved to make people laugh. Uh, and then Sean got bit by the travel bug and then we didn't see him for a few years. So how were you and Sean different and, and how did that affect your relationship? I'm thinking in particular as you're younger, you know, before you're actually going off and traveling. Yeah. Well, you know, the younger years when you're siblings and there's, you know, fighting and punching and especially with brothers and wrestling <laughs> and all that stuff, like that was definitely a thing in our household. 
you know, where uh, if if you pissed Sean off, he would punch you or hit you or whatever. And it, it kind of had that big brother domain over you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, he was also, you know, quite a caring guy. And, you know, that was kind of instilled into him by my mom. Um, who was amazing in her own right at what she did and who she was as a person. I kind of, you know, I use that every single day in my life. How did your connection with the outdoors begin? You, you mentioned Sean got into skiing and everything. Well, funnily enough, my our connection through the outdoors was through our stepdad. Um, his name was Roy. He was a hunter, fisherman, outdoorsman, uh, canoeist. So he, he really taught us all that stuff. You know, he, when we were in elementary school, we had this course every year called Hunter Education and he would always volunteer at the camp and he would make these really cool like obstacle courses. And, you know, he was in the military police, so he had that kind of upbringing. So we had all these cool kind of activities and drills to do, you know, like making a fire and, and all that sort of stuff. And then as we were kids and we kind of, you know, progressed on in, in, in age, he decided that we were old enough to go on a canoe trip. Mm. So he took my, you know, us three brothers or two cousins and another, another kid. And we started going on canoe trips around local rivers, like multi-day, you know, full on. And, you know, for him being the only adult and the rest of the kids were like 16 and under five and six of them. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty challenging, I would say. (laughs) So that gave you a taste for, for the outdoors, which you obviously liked. Yeah, I loved it. I mean, um, you know, the outdoors just teaches you so much, you know, not only just about nature and its place and our place in it, but, um, you know, just things that help you as a person, like integrity and, and, um, you know, passion for things and, and being a steward of the land and taking care of things and taking care of people. So yeah, that really, um, that really stuck with me. And then another, another outdoors realm for my childhood people don't normally equate to the outdoors necessarily, but I fell in love with the game of golf when I was 13. And, um, wow. Yeah. And we were outside, my friends and I, we just became addicted. So we were outside playing golf for like 12 or 15 hours a day in the summertime. And you're just playing and playing and practicing and practicing. And, you know, like golf is kind of that, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a weird you're, you're in nature, you're playing a sport, you're in there. And, and again, golf teaches you a lot of those things like integrity and, and, you know, a lot of the principles that, that make you a good person. Sean, you you mentioned about the travel thing. At some point he met someone who convinced him to go to Nepal to see the mountains and that sort of changed things for him. What happened there? Yeah, because, you know, Sean in his teen years, like I just mentioned my stepdad. So he passed away when I was 15 and Sean was 17. And he, yeah, he went down the rebellious route. So, you know, he was kind of like a headbanging metalhead. He was, you know, doing drugs and drinking and that kind of stuff. And then he moved away from home, you know, when he was quite young, he wasn't even 18, I don't think. And then he moved to, moved to Roslyn to the, to BC to ski. Um, but then when he started traveling, so a friend of him convinced him to go to Nepal 
And when he went to Nepal, things drastically changed. I think he really turned from that, you know, from meeting locals and real true people that lived on the land, you know, much like my grandparents did on our farm and meeting other travelers from other walks of life and all different kinds of things. Um, Sean really kind of came into his own as a human, I think then during that time, you know, you're young and impressionable and all these things are happening. He really loved the culture shock, like all the sights and sounds and tastes and smells of things that weren't Canadian. You know, he just, he, his mind was blown away. So when he came back from that trip, I think it just lit spark in him and he never wanted to stop traveling. What was he talking about when he came back? Where was he going? Uh, well then after soon after, um, when he, when Sean moved to Rosalind, he started climbing, rock climbing. So the climbing bug got him and then him and his friends went to this Mecca of sport climbing in Thailand called Riley beach. Uh, where there's like thousands of bolted limestone sport routes that you can go and just climb all day, party all night and just rinse and repeat. Right. So he, um, <laughs> so combining travel and a sport that he loved to do, with his buddies again that he met. And, you know, this is people that he either were from Rosalind or from his hometown or that he met on the road and just traveling. And he just really, he found out the way, you know, he cracked the code to live as cheap as possible. Um, and then he just, he just prolonged his adventures as much as he could on the, in mainly in third world countries. And at some point along here, you really got into golf. Can you talk about that? So I thought that would be a good, you know, step in my young career to become not a professional golfer because that takes, you know, 20 times the more of the discipline to play the game on a professional level. So I became a golf professional, you know, teaching lessons at, at different golf courses and, you know, just living that life. Um, but then that also led into travel for myself. Like my brother, I saw what happened to him and he kept encouraging me to go travel by myself. So I would save every single penny of the lesson money that I taught during the summer. I would have a separate account and then I would go and plan my own adventures for four to five months every off season. I picture your brother as, I mean, the way you described him as almost being a, a scruffy, you know, earthy type person who, uh, who is comfortable in, in any environment that seems somewhat disorganized, you know, wilderness, etc. And then you, with you working as a golf pro, I picture you, you know, wearing the, the white pants and the, whatever the, the golf outfit is for it. It's like, you guys seem very different at that point. Oh man, you nailed it. Yeah, exactly. I was kind of like, uh, you know, when you're a professional, you have to, you know, dress that way and sort of act that way and look that way, maybe a certain way. And Sean was, you, you sure. said it perfectly. He was earthy. He was like, uh, he was definitely part hippie, part ski bum, all that stuff. Kind of a green neck, I guess you could call him. And we, we had grown apart over those years. You know, it was like, we were like kind of two different people. Like, you know, we definitely had travel as, um, one thing in common that we had. But, you know, it couldn't have been, we couldn't have been further apart in terms of like, 
sort of um, what we wanted from life in those early years, in our early 20s. What kind of travel were you doing? Like, like describe what you would do for your travel in the off season. Yeah, well, this mainly at that time, this was obviously before I was introduced to the world of moto travel, um, backpacking. Mm -hmm. So I was a young backpacker. You know, first I went down to um, uh, New Zealand, Australia, Indonesia. In Indonesia when I, was when I got my first real good dose of culture shock. And it was like, wow, that was pretty cool. Uh, Mexico, Central America, um, I went back to Australia again once. Um, so yeah, Southeast Asia, Central America, backpacking and just kind of, you know, living that lifestyle where I was definitely a little bit too into the, you know, the lonely planet crowd where you're, you're following that book. And as a result, you're meeting the same people and kind of doing the same things. And which Sean was a complete opposite mm. of that. He was like, leave your lonely planet at home because you're just going to end up running into the same people and going to the same places. So it's like, it's way more adventurous when you just go listen to the locals, you know, and follow your, follow your instinct and your intuition. So the two different styles of travel. At one point you guys decide to do a trip together though, to do a, a brother trip, I guess. What was that trip supposed to be about and where were you going to go? We'd, we realized that it was, it was high time to travel together. Like I had been traveling for, I guess, seven or eight years. He had been traveling for about 10 years or 10 or 11 years. And it was always, you know, on, on his own. I was on my own. So we're like, okay, well, let's, you know, let's reconnect as brothers and let's go traveling together. So we decided on South Africa. We were both keen to see some wildlife and neither of us had been to Africa before. So that kind of seemed great. So we met in Cape Town. Uh, I had come straight from my golf professional gig in Ontario. Actually, at the time I was working in Owen Sound and Sean was in Cambodia. And this was when he first started to get, uh, introduced into motos and motocross and he was racing motorbikes in motocross in Cambodia and kind of as a result and almost as oh, a wow. almost as a byproduct of that he had started to travel around Cambodia with his bike and he just realized how amazing it was and how much freedom existed from traveling on two wheels from you know to get from place to place and from race to race kind of thing right so then we met together in Cape Town. Mm -hmm. um, he was still into climbing, so he brought all his climbing stuff. And then um, a couple of months later, after we were working for a while, he's like, hey, Todd, why don't we just buy dirt bikes and we could do the, you know, we could cruise around through Southern Africa together. He's like, what do you think about that? So I was kind of shell-shocked a little bit, you know, it was like kind of coming out of left field and, you know, it was <laughs> totally a different, because you're not into bikes at this point. Exactly. I'd never really even owned a motorcycle. I had ridden a couple when I was younger. You know, my younger brother had one. And um, so I was a little bit nervous to say the least. But you did it. We did it. Yeah. So we, um, we bought these two bikes in Cape Town, these pair of used Honda 250 XLRs. And I loved it right away. I was just like, wow, this is pretty cool. You know, you had to definitely had to be careful because, 
even though the Cape Town traffic or roads or riding isn't too bad, uh, you know, you're, you are on the wrong side of the road and, you know, you got to wrap your head around that to begin with. Uh, and then just learning the bike and shifting and braking and, you know, all the stuff and, um, uh, all the things. And then it becomes even a little bit more difficult when you strap a bunch of stuff on there and, you know, suddenly your front wheel comes a bit squirrely and you're on the gravel and you're like, Oh, I better be even more careful now, you know? Your, your trip, I think was supposed to be three months. Did you, your idea of the trip length change when you got the motorcycles? Well, uh, it was supposed to be a little bit longer. It was supposed to be about four months. Uh, we left in, uh, late April and our mom was getting remarried in August. So we knew we had to be back for August for the wedding. And that was what we were shooting for. We're like, okay, we got, we got some time. So let's just, you know, take our time and explore and kind of see as many countries we can within this loop. Um, but then when we had got, so we went, we, we started in Cape Town, headed up through the Western Cape into Namibia, which is amazing. That's like the best gravel roads in the world. You know, it's just like so open and free there. Uh, we headed up through the Caprivi Strip, Zambia, Zimbabwe or Zimbabwe, Zambia, and over to Mozambique. So somewhere along this trip, or either before, was somewhere in here, you guys decided not to take anti-malaria medication. Can you talk about that decision and, and what, why you did this? And, and, and for those that, that don't know your story, of course, this is back in 19, what, 99? 99, yeah. They are the official sock of Adventure Rider Radio. They are the best cold weather socks I've ever tried in many decades of wilderness adventures. They are the socks that I wear probably more than anything else. They are Pearly's Possum Socks. Pearly's Possum Socks are made of all-natural fibers, merino wool, and possum fur, blended and knitted specifically for us motorcycle riders, although they work in everything else where you want to keep your feet warm, comfortable, and dry, and that you don't want your feet to stink in. The natural fibers of Pearly's have lanolin in them, which is a natural ingredient found in both merino wool and possum fur. That lanolin makes it almost impossible to grow fungi, which is why your feet don't stink in Pearly socks. Not like synthetic socks where, whew, man, Pearly's don't stink. And because of that, you have healthier feet. They wick away moisture from your skin as well because these natural fibers do this automatically. And that means your feet are drier. And of course, your feet are healthier. Yes, I believe my feet are healthier because of Pearly's Possum Socks. Of course, I use them for riding, but I would never leave these socks in the drawer and just wait for a ride. These socks are so good that I use them almost every day. Now, remember, it's easier to keep your feet warm than to try and warm them up after they're cold. And while some riders will be sitting around trying to warm their cold, damp feet, you'll be out riding your motorcycle in comfort. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com Well, you're probably going to need a large bookshelf to hold all the motorcycle books you can find at RoadDogPub.com. RoadDogPub specializes in motorcycle books. And they... Actually, no. I think RoadDogPub really specializes in great motorcycle stories. That's what it's all about. Finding and publishing great motorcycle stories. And that's what Road Dog Pub does. 
The reason they do that is because the owner of Road Dog Pub is a rider just like you and I, Mike Fitterling. Mike loves to ride and rides at every chance he can and is passionate about what he does for our community in publishing these great motorcycle stories. And they have new books all the time. So whether it's for you to escape into someone's epic adventure and live through them vicariously while maybe you sip your coffee or brandy in your comfortable chair this winter, or whether maybe it's a book to inspire a friend or a family member, check out RoadDogPub.com. They have new releases all the time. As I said, recently they've had Ron Davis with another book, Rubber Side Down, Steve Sherrill's book, Motorcycles, Minotaurs, and Banjos, and A Year in Motion from the publisher himself, Mike Fitterling. You can buy Road Dog Pubs at all fine bookstores, or you can sort of skip that and go right to the publisher at RoadDogPub.com. And when you do, make sure you let them know you heard them here at Adventure Rider Radio, RoadDogPub.com. It was uh, April of 99, and we were in Cape Town. And, you know, we knew that obviously there was malaria in Africa, so we went to see a travel nurse and let her know what, you know, kind of our proposed route and itinerary as far as geographic locations were concerned. She said, okay, I can I can prescribe larium to you guys, which is at the time, um, I guess, the number one prescribed anti-malarial that was out there and that was effective. Um, mm. And in traveler circles, it is known as scarium. That is due to its, you know, a lot of reported cases of people having really, really vivid, harsh, scary nightmares, um, other physical side effects like really bad headaches, nausea, all that kind of stuff, vomiting, chills and fever and whatever. Um, and then even on the extreme cases, like people turning on their partners and having these violent psychotic episodes and all that stuff. So that kind of spooked us, I think a little bit. And, uh, you know, then she said, okay, or the other option, which I don't recommend is, you know, uh, wearing long sleeves and pants and, and, um, at, at night or at sunset when the, when the female Anopheles mosquitoes comes out and just, you know, you got to be really diligent with that and wear bug juice and protect yourself because, you know, all it takes is one bite. So, um, Mm -hmm. stupidly enough. And, you know, it was, I, I, I blame this on kind of youthful ignorance was we were just like, okay, well that won't happen to us. Let's just, let's just take care of each other and, you know, do our best to prevent from getting bit. And, we didn't take valerium and it's, it's probably still the biggest regret of my life. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to talk a bit about the, the motorcycle riding because this was brand new to you and you started getting on the bike and you, the way you described the bike is it's, it's difficult to ride on the other side of the road. And then you talked about adding the weight and all those little things that you, you there was, I mean, there was a description of somebody who was very nervous to begin with of, of this new mode of transportation. How did that transform for you into that, that ride of freedom? Yeah. Um, I think just being, I I was able to ride my bike in and around the city and around, you know, we did some side trips before our big departure headed out. So 
I was mm-hmm. still getting more comfortable by the day behind the handlebars, you know, handling things a bit smoother, learning how to counterbalance and things like that and getting up on your pegs and squeezing the tank and, you know, just a few little things that Sean had taught me to feel more comfortable on the bike. But really when we were, when we hit the road and we started traveling down that Western Cape there, where there was a lot of gravel and farmland and stuff like that, uh, packed with weight. Um, I think just as the miles crunched on, I got, just got really more comfortable with the bike and then more comfortable with myself on the bike. And, and the, the freedom just took hold and it was like nothing else mattered. I remember specifically this one time, it was in the first couple of days that we had left and we were cruising along. It was just like nothing but farmland and, and, um, you know, just open kind of scrubland or bush, you know, the veld that they call it. And there was this ostrich just, it was kind of like racing us. I was like, is he scared that we're going to like come after him or is he like actually racing us? And I was looking at my speedometer. It was like 50 kilometers an hour, 55, 60. I was like, holy. Wow. And it was just like so cool to have that special moment with nature, with wildlife, with my brother. It was just like, man, it was just like, it was everything. You said the motorcycle was sort of the ultimate way to bond with your brother. What is that experience? Yeah, that was, I think, when we really started, um, you know, because like I said before, me and my brother didn't have the best relationship growing up as kids and, you know, and then what happened to my my stepdad and all that sort of stuff that kind of caused a bit of friction, I think, in the family. And then we grew apart, you know, he, he moved away. I was doing my thing. He was doing his own thing. So being on the bikes and, you know, going through that routine of, riding all day and then looking for a place to camp and setting up camp and cooking together and, you know, sleeping in a tent together and then waking up the next day and doing it all, doing it all over again before cell phones or GPS or any of that stuff, any of those distractions, it was like true bonding and connection. And it was, it was, it was really quite, really quite cool for us. And for you, for the motorcycle, was that how you, was that the point where you fall in love with the motorcycle as a mode of travel? Yeah, a hundred percent. I was like, oh my God, I don't have to catch a bus, a taxi. I don't have to carry a heavy pack on my shoulders for like, you know, days on end and, you know, worry about all that stuff. It was just like all those logistics, you just like swipe them away with your hand and you got your bike and that's all that matters. Yeah. So it, it fast forward to this, this little adventure that you're on, the months go by, your visas are expiring, you got to leave. And, and I think you were going to sell the bikes, but Sean had contracted malaria at this point. He got bit by mosquito. So, so how did that begin to manifest itself? Yeah, it was all in that crazy time of where we knew when we had, we knew we were, yeah, the visas are expiring. We had to go home soon. Our flights were booked. Our mom was getting married. So we had to deal with the bikes and getting them sold. And this was back, we, we had kind of completed the loop, not all the way back to Cape Town, but we were back in Johannesburg now. Sean had met some friends in, uh, in Thailand that were living in Joburg at the time. So we at least had somewhere to stay. We stayed with them. The next day, we were supposed to meet someone that was going to buy the bikes. And Sean was really feeling bad. Um, 
actually, if I can just fa- uh, rewind two days previous, we were staying, yeah. staying in this place called Sabi, really beautiful pl- part of South Africa, pine trees, everything kind of reminded us of Canada. And we were staying with a friend, both Sean and this guy's son had a fever. So this guy even said to us, he's like, you, you got to be careful because this, if this is malaria, this is like danger, dangerville. He's like, it's Sunday right now. There's no doctors working there. You know, these, that doesn't happen right now. So he's like, you can drive to Johannesburg and get checked out there as soon as you get there. So Sean, when he woke up the next morning, he was actually feeling quite better, like a little bit better. And I, he's, I said, are you sure that you, you're okay to make this, you know, four or five hour mission to Joburg? And the, the kid was feeling better too. So we just thought it was like, you know, 24 hour flu kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we got to Joburg waiting for this guy to show up with the bikes. And Sean is like laying on the pavement because he's kind of like racked with fever. And, you know, we're waiting for this guy and he's like, I've never felt like this before. So luckily there had been like a health clinic not far away. So I was like, you go in there and get in there. I will wait for this guy and just, you know, like I said, this was before cell phones, so you couldn't really text or anything like that. This was like the meeting spot. You're waiting for the guy to buy your bikes. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so Sean went in, he was diagnosed with malaria, um, and they started an IV drip of quinine, which after 24 hours is supposed to take, you know, supposed to take it, run its course and you're okay. But, um, when I went in to see him the next day, he wasn't there. They said he'd been transferred to the ICU at the Bergwanath Hospital in Soweto, which is the biggest hospital in the Southern Hemisphere. It's massive. So right away, I was kind of like, you know, I wasn't in panic mode, but I was like, this is real. So the malaria had progressed to the point of cerebral which is, you know, it affects your brain and then it starts to shut down your organs one by one. So within the span of four and a half days, um, you know, I had gone from having the epic high of highs of my life on ultimate freedom, riding through Southern Africa with my brother to the, the, the depths of despair and guilt uh, have, of having just lost my brother. Oh my God. I can't, I can't imagine what that would be like. Uh, I, I mean, standing there, what, what do you think when this happens? Well, what runs through your head? Oh yeah. So many things. I mean, um, anger. I, I was, I was so angry at myself for I think not listening to our friend Kenny a couple of days ago who from Sabi, who, you know, he said, you should, you know, you should see a doctor right away. We probably should have just stayed there with him, went and saw the doctor immediately the next morning or whatever. And Sean probably would be here with us today. So yeah, there's that. And just like, just like, Oh my God, I got to like tell my mom. You know, like my mom had lost two husbands already in her life. And now to lose her firstborn son, it was just like, it it like ripped me to pieces for sure. 
and the whole rush of what you're doing where there was to try and get home for your mom's wedding. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, the, the one amazing thing that came out of this is the doctor that treated Sean or all the doctors that treated Sean, they were like true angels. They tried everything they could in their power. And, you know, the doctor at that time, because she's an experienced medical profession, she understood that, you know, once your once your liver shuts down, then your pancreas is next, and then your lungs are going to go soon, and then it's just only a matter of time, really, right? So she had mm-hmm. called my mom. I don't even know how she got the phone number or any of that stuff. I was just like in this state of blur. Um, and my parents or my mom and her soon to be my soon to be stepdad, her her soon to be husband. Um, were on their way. They got on these emergency flights and they were flying from Edmonton, Alberta to Soweto like or to Johannesburg. And unfortunately, they missed seeing Sean by about eight hours. He passed away while, while they were in the air. Um, wow. Yeah, but the doctors, the, my parents stayed with the parents of Sean's doctor who had also just lost a son like a few years earlier. He got hit by a drunk driver while he was cycling. Um, so, uh. so just having that connection really helped the grieving process. And especially with my mom, cause like she was, um, she handled it much better than I thought she would. And, you know, just seeing her step off the plane, uh, and just being so grateful that I was there with him really took a lot of that off my shoulders, you know, instead of, instead of being mad at me or whatever, racking me with guilt, she totally understood. And she just said, I'm, I'm so sorry what happened, you know. And you had a lot of trouble dealing with survivor's guilt over this. Yeah. And I didn't even know what survivor's guilt was at the time. Uh, even after that, a couple of years after that, I just, I just knew that I was, this was just weighing on me that why was it him and not me? Or, you know, it could have been both of us. Um, you know, why, why did the universe take Sean and not me, even though we'd been traveling in the exact same places and all that stuff. And, you know, so, um, yeah, I dealt with that for quite a while, like at least three or four years. And then it wasn't until I met my now partner, Christina, and we had decided to kind of keep Sean's legacy alive and his dream. Cause while we were on the road in Zimbabwe, he said to me, he's like, Todd, we could do this back home. We could buy bikes in Canada and drive all the way to South America. And I was like, wow, that's, that seems pretty awesome. Like I was totally addicted to adventure moto travel at the time. So I was like, I was fully in. So you know, after he passed away and that time passed, uh, I met Christina and I actually got down on one knee and kind of fake proposed to her. And I said, would you like to ride a motorcycle to South America with me to kind of keep, <laughs> keep Sean's dream alive? And she said, yes. And then we started planning another big mega trip. And that was, you know, it wasn't until I got back on the bike again and hit the open road and, you know, her helping me through all of this. And only then did I realize and, you know, I kind of accepted it. Um, I acknowledged it and then I just, I, um, I forgave myself for it, you know, and that's the big thing was forgiveness to myself. 
where does the carved wooden elephant come in? Yeah, the carved wooden elephant comes in um, just after I had gone back to the hospital. We had Sean cremated there and they gave me his ashes in this like purple kind of box. And um, Sean was kind of the most out of the box guy that you could imagine. So I said, well, there's no way I'm bringing him home just in this like random box. So I was on my motorbike driving back to my buddy's place and I saw this curio stand, all these wooden carved, they make these beautiful, like those, those carving artists there in Africa, there's, they're awesome. They make these beautiful wooden carvings of all kinds of African wildlife that you could imagine. And, um, I pulled in there, got off my bike, was walking around and I saw this, like, there was probably 10 or 12 of them. They're each, it, it's a, it's about 12 or 15 inches high by, you know, a foot wide or whatever it is. And, uh, it's just a nice stout looking elephant. And this guy approached me and he said, can I help you? And I said, well, I want to bring my brother's ashes home, you know, with me. And he said, give me one day. I'll take this, uh, I'll take this elephant home. And tomorrow when we meet, you can see where you can put the ashes. And he was such a genuine guy. He cared about me so much. I kind of broke down in tears when I was there. Cause this was like so fresh and raw. It was coming in waves and couldn't control it. And he's just like, I was bawling and bawling and bawling. He's just like, let it go, let it go. And so the next day I met him again and he had taken, he had taken it home. He had taken the time to carve a big hole, um, you know, from the top and into its belly. And he said, you can put the ashes in here and you can take your brother home with you. The elephants always remember. So your brother will always be with you now and you will always remember him. Wow. And I carried that with me on the airplane and um, brought that home with me. And I'm, I'm looking at it right now. And that's, that's, that's the name of my book, Inside the Belly of an Elephant. And um, yeah, that's kind of, that's my brother right there. What effect did, did Sean's death have on the way that you were living your life at that point? Because I think you had quite a profound change from this. Yeah, massive. Um, so yeah, I was, you know, I was still in the golf industry at that time, but I realized that, you know, kind of shortly after that, that it wasn't really feeding my soul. You know, I was spending long, long days and hours at the golf course working in the summertime, managing a staff, teaching lessons, doing all the stuff. And, uh, I knew that this wasn't for me moving forward. So Sean was big into photography, even while we were on our trip, shooting a lot of slide film. He was a student, you know, kind of self-taught at the time. And I had been dabbling in it, you know, just with a point and shoot on our, on our trips. And, you know, I, I loved photography and, and a friend of mine, he pointed out that there was this course in Victoria called the Western Academy of Photography. Uh, it was like a two year immersive program where you, oh, sorry, t uh, 10 month fully immersive program. And this was studying journalism and photography. So I decided to quit the golf business 
I went to school, I dove in head first to study photography. And that was, you know, that was the start of another love affair. Um, I was single at the time and I just committed myself to studying and learning all about writing and photography. And I just loved it. So my, my worldview had changed then. Um, I just, I became fully immersed in, in, in creating as many amazing images as possible because I knew this was a, a good tool to be able to continue to travel in the future. And as you mentioned, you ended up doing a trip. You, you, you met this woman, Christina, who went with you, decided to go with you. And are you guys riding your own bikes? Is that what it was? Two bikes you rode? Yeah, we bought a, a pair of Yamaha XT350s. We bought them here in Whistler from two separate owners that lived a block away. So it was like totally <laughs> serendipitous. And one of them was like purple and blue, which is Christina's favorite colors. And, you know, mine was, mine was white and white and blue, the Yamaha colors. And, uh, we, we named them Lucky and Lucinda and we had worked our asses off for about 18 months straight. We both had four jobs each and we had this glass jar at home. We called it the travel fund. Every single penny, every tip, every paycheck, everything went into this jar and we had this bare necessities attitude. Whereas if you don't need it, if it's a want, if, if it's a want and not a need, it doesn't get purchased. Uh, you know, no coffees, mm. no snacks or chocolate bars, not, none of that stuff. Just be like super ultra diligent with our savings. And, um, yeah, we set off, um, with no real grand plans. You know, we weren't like, we're going to go to Tierra del Fuego. That wasn't in the, the only goal that we wanted to accomplish was to visit every single country in mainland Latin America. Uh, there's or mainland or all the Americas. There's 23 of them. Um, and 19 months and 47,000 kilometers later, we reached that goal when our uh, wheels touched down in Chile. Wow. And so does that do it for you? Do you at that point say, okay, now I've had my fill of motorcycle travel? <laughs> no, no, that kind of, <laughs> that only, that only fueled the fire. Yeah. Because, you know, going through what I went through, um, experiencing this with Christina, it just brought it on to a whole nother level. And then Africa was just like clawing at me. I don't know what it is. But it is like they say it has a way of seeping into your skin. And uh, it had definitely seeped into my skin and it was just kind of calling me back. So I remember at the, at the end of the trip, I said to Christina, I was like, you know, I, I, I feel the need or the urge to go back to Africa and continue what we're doing here. Um, you know, are you into that? And she's like, of course. So let's do it. So, um, so we came back to Canada. We shipped our bikes from Santiago to Vancouver. And then we dove in again to the work mode of like working, saving, and, um, you know, exploring a little bit of our backyard and the bikes as well. Hexinnovate.com is the inventor of the GS911. Now, in case you're not aware, that's the diagnostic tool that has changed the lives of many BMW riders. 
The GS911 allows you to see inside the computer system that runs BMW motorcycles. It can check fault codes and help diagnose problems in the system in a way that only a dealership could before. It's truly revolutionary. It can save you the expense not only of a dealership visit, but also the GS911 gives you some peace of mind while you're riding your bike, well, anywhere, because if something goes wrong with your BMW, instead of it being left as a dead bike at the side of the road of the trail, you pull out your GS911 out of your pocket and begin checking systems. It's a game changer for BMW riders and probably should be a staple for every BMW rider toolkit. So that's the GS911. Now, Hex Innovate also invented the EasyCan Accessory Manager. Now, the EasyCan is a device that plugs into well, all kinds of motor, uh, modern motorcycles into their CAN bus system, not just BMWs, Harleys, Ducatis, KTMs, Husqvarna's, Triumph, Yamaha, Honda. The EasyCan allows you to add accessories without cutting a bunch of wires and potentially voiding your warranty and or messing up the system. It allows you to use your existing controls to turn accessories on or off. It's like an amazingly powerful unit. If you add an accessory to your bike and you have a CAN bus system, then you should look at the EasyCan. Even the OEMs like the EasyCan, the, the manufacturers do, because it's a way for riders to add electrical accessories without creating issues in the motorcycle's electrical system. Now, the person behind Hex Innovate, who makes the GS911 and the EasyCan, is an avid motorcyclist just like you and I. And I think that's a huge part of what makes companies like Hex Innovate so great, is that, that passion behind the company itself. The website is hexinnovate.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in the that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Hexinnovate.com. Standing on your foot pegs gives you more control over your motorcycle. And this is obvious anytime you watch any great rider. You'll see them transfer their weight front to back, lean side to side, bend their knees, all while standing on their foot pegs. Standing offers just tons of advantages. And when you stand, if you think about it, your only solid connection between you and your motorcycle is between your boots and your foot pegs or at least it should be. And if you're on IMS products foot pegs, you'll feel what I felt when I switched to IMS because the, the difference was absolutely night and day. Grip, contact, control, and the wider platform gives you leverage, leverage to get more out of your bike. As well, the larger platform is more comfortable standing or sitting. IMS products has been making parts for riders like us since 1976, and they pour everything into their complete line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs from the large platforms of their ADV-1 and ADV-2, which are perfect for fire roads or mile after mile riding down the, the highways, on down in size to their core enduro, which is their more aggressive for off-road orientated riding, IMS Products has a peg to suit your style. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you deal with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Was there any apprehension heading back to Africa? I mean, this is where your brother died. There was loads of apprehension. And, the, the, you know, the, the apprehension mostly came from my mom, obviously, because she's like, there's no way in hell you're going back to Africa when oh, yeah. I lost my son. So, uh, you know, I, I realized it was possibly and potentially, and it sounded like a bit of a selfish pursuit to go back there. But I knew that we wanted to do something and give back because I had, you know, when you travel in this manner and you're on the road consistently every day, 
things do and will go wrong. And there's always road angels and people that help you out like every single day when you think about it, whether it's, you know, the person serving you food at the restaurant or, you know, at your little hotel or campground you're staying at, everybody is always helping you. And it's hard to, it's hard to kind of give back, like aside from being an economical, you know, um, benefit to the, to the economy as a whole, there's still, you know, you know, you want to be able to do something and give back. So I knew that we had been doing some research and we discovered that, um, sleeping under a mosquito net helps prevent malaria cases by up to like 70% in Africa and especially in rural Africa. So, so I, I knew we pitched this company called the against malaria foundation. It's not a, it's not a company, it's an NGO. Uh, and they do fantastic work worldwide with helping stem the cases of malaria by distributing insecticide treated bed nets. So, we, our thing was, okay, well, let's, as, as much as, as often as we can, we'll cram our saddlebags full of mosquito nets. And as we're traveling remotely, we will give these away to the people that we're staying with. That'll help them. So we did that. And obviously there's, you know, we, we raised, I think it was like six or $7,000 from our network of friends and family. And we never saw that money just went straight into these nets. Um, and then when we, you know, when we, didn't have the space or whatever to take on all the nets. We joined forces with these other really big um, mosquito net distribution projects that were taking place in Africa. And um, we just helped volunteer during that time. And the way that they, the way that they handled all this stuff, Jim was amazing. It was just like supremely well-organized. And, you know, when you're, when you, when you're a part of something, that is doing so much good and, and preventing, you know, saving lives. Like it feels good. It feels, it's a good feeling to be, to, to be part of that. What's that like? When you, like when you're going to, you said you would people you're staying with and you're, you're giving them nets, like, do they not have nets? Do they not understand about the nets? And, and what is that like? How do you introduce it? Yeah, it was kind of all the above. Some, like some people definitely had nets, some of them were in like terrible condition where you could see it was probably seven years old and there was rips and holes and they'd tried to stitch them up. And, mm-hmm. But other people like in the really remote areas, um, they didn't really know, they didn't even know how to hang it properly because part of our role, because we had the bikes was, uh, you know, post campaign, post, um, post distribution project, we would go, from village to village and hut to hut to make sure that the nets were hung properly. Um, oftentimes they were hung like two inches above the floor where their mat was. So which would render them ineffective. So we just helped them to lower it and just, you know, you got to tuck it into your bed so it helps. And, and, you know, like you could really see people how grateful they were. It was primarily for kids under five because that's when you're most susceptible to catching, you know, malaria uh, at night. So you could, you know, so help these parents were just like so grateful. And of course, you come across those bad instances where the men will take them and using use them for fishing nets, or even you know, there was some cases of even the white ones 
people using them to make like wedding veils and dresses and things like that. So they wouldn't use them for the purpose that they were meant for. So, you know, the malaria consortium and again, the motives against or the against malaria foundation, they were happy that we were on the ground filming all this stuff for them to use and just, you know, going. So we spent days going with our bikes in rural Uganda, mainly uh, going from, like I said, village to village, hut to hut, and, you know, talking with all these people and making sure that their nets were hung properly. Wow. That's really neat. Cause there's been lives saved there. I mean, even if there was one from, from the work you did, I mean, it's a life. It's just amazing. Yeah, exactly. Even if there was one, I mean, like, like, because I know that it's a preventative disease, we could have prevented my brother from dying and it, like you said, if there's one person that I know that we, we potentially saved their life, it's, it's worth every single, you know, kilometer of crunching, you know, of searing African heat and hunger and all that stuff, that, all the stuff that you go through on a, on a trip, it was just worth every moment of it. Uh, so what does your life look like now? Oh, well, we, my wife and my daughter, we just returned from a, another big epic trip. Um, our daughter is 12 now. She was 10 when we left. And um, we just returned from a year-long trip from Ireland to India and, and kind of back through through Morocco. And um, we, we spent a year, we had two motorcycles one Russian Ural sidecar motorcycle and one Royal Enfield Himalayan. We shipped them from here to Canada, mm-hmm. to Ireland. And then we rode, yeah, for 377 days, 23 countries, or no, sorry, 29 countries. Um, because we wanted to introduce our daughter to the world of adventure motorcycle travel. And we knew the education that was going to come from it. Wow. And what does she think of it? Yeah, well, she was, she was an absolute trooper the whole time. I mean, she loved sitting in her sidecar. She had her little stuffy there so she could like fall asleep in it. Oftentimes she did. Um, but, you know, half the time her head was just like glued to the landscape and, you know, you start interacting with people on a daily basis and just even things like, you know, the, the whole procedure of getting to camp and setting up camp and pitching in and helping and cooking and cleaning and packing up again and doing it all over again the next day. And I think, you know, people ask us all the time, well, what was she in school or was what you guys do for that? And I just say like, she learned more when we weren't trying to teach her anything, like mm-hmm. just, just as a result of and being, you know, traveling every single day, no matter rain, shine, rain or shine or whatever the you know, mother nature was thrown at you that day, she wanted to go and she was like, she was game. And it was, it was pretty amazing to watch it all, to watch her grow over the course of that year. I'll bet. And when you come back, do, does your family notice a big difference in her? Do they see her being a different person? 
Yeah, I think a little bit. You know, it's when she, the day she got back, her friends came over and they surprised her and she went to school the next day, you know, like nothing ever happened. (laughs) And, you know, meantime, mom and dad are like, oh, I kind of want to see all our friends and family and stuff, but I also just want to like stay at home and hibernate for two or three weeks and just like (laughs) recalibrate here, you know, because it is... It is quite taxing, as you know, like as, as us moto adventurers know, logistics can be taxing and, you know, the travel in itself can be quite, quite hectic and, you know, just trying to plan everything. And, you know, we did try to take some breaks here and there off the bikes where you just, you know, you don't, you don't worry about that, but, but, um, yeah, they, they noticed how, I think they really noticed just how, um, open she was to other people and interested in other people a little bit more engaging i guess i would say oh that's really neat i mean it's got to be some of the best education that you'll ever get for a young mind yeah and who knows you know she's going to have this in her back pocket for the rest of her life it'll be part of her story you know growing up um whether she chooses to have a motorcycle or not when she's older that doesn't really matter Mm-hmm. What matters is that, you know, she, I think even learning from what me and her mom did, Christina, was like, set a plan, set your goal, you know, may, you know, save your money and make a plan towards that. And then, you know, book the flight, book the flight. And then you got something to hold you accountable towards and all that stuff. And every single day you got to chip away at it. Like, you know, we had stuff strewn throughout our living room of gear and, you know, you're going through all the stuff and what do you need and what do we not need? And, and then just, yeah, just really having that commitment and going for it. As you mentioned uh, at some point there when we were talking, you mentioned about you you wrote a book about this whole adventure you've had and, and obviously very centered on on your brother and what you experienced there. What do you want others to learn or to know from your brother's life? Um, just, you know, it's, I, I guess to not follow the rules in a respectful way, you know, like, live your own life according to how you want to live your own life, whether, whatever that may be. And, um, just, just kind of really dive in. Like, you know, when, when you're traveling, he was the kind of guy that would, instead of taking the rickshaw ride in the back, Sean would like go to the front of the rickshaw, tell the driver to sit in the back he would take the guy out for lunch and then he would rickshaw him back. And the, the, the guy would, you know, at first he'd be like, no, 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 no. And Sean would like kind of make him do that or, you know, certain things like that. Like kind of when you're traveling, it's so easy to just get into that mode of like, Oh, I'm a tourist now. And, um, you know, I'll just take everything and, take and take and take and not give back in this sort of genuine way. But, you know, when you, when you're not following the herd and you're not buying the canned adventures, life really in these experiences really can expand your life. And when you get really into like either helping out the locals with like farm work or even just something like that, where you're just like volunteering out of your own heart, not, not necessarily some planned thing, 
it's just spontaneity is so undervalued, I think, in travel. It's like people don't do it enough. Like nowadays we can book every single thing in advance and you know what you're doing every day if you're going on holidays. But with motorcycle travel, you really open yourself up to spontaneity and serendipity. And it's just, it is an absolute game changer. So I think I really learned that from Sean, which is just to, you know, be spontaneous and be, be ready for anything. When it comes at you, just embrace it and go for it. Todd, thanks so much for, for sharing your story. And I'm, I'm sorry for your loss. Thanks so much. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. This was an absolute pleasure and an honor. And uh, I look forward to the next one. was Todd Lawson from his home in British Columbia, Canada. The book that Todd has written telling this story is called Inside the Belly of an Elephant. It's by Todd Lawson. We've got some photos from Todd's adventures, not just the one in the book, but others as well. And we've got the links, etc., all in the show notes as usual on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, of course, Elizabeth Martin, and you. Thank you very much for listening and being a part of this. Hey, if you haven't done it already, we would really appreciate it if you would give us a rating wherever you find your podcast, iTunes or, or Spotify or wherever. Five star, of course, is what I'm hoping for from you. Uh, but anyway, a rating because that helps other people find the show. That would be great. Now, the other thing is this show is a built on a built on a model of advertising and listener support. So we need your support. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, click on support and consider our patron option. Just a few dollars a month. Um, I mean, just think of what you get from the show. We're here every single week for you. We've got our other show that comes out once a month. Whatever you want to do, just once a month and you help keep the show going. We'd really appreciate it if you drop by and check it out. adventureriderradio.com and click on support. My name is Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. And I will talk to you next week. Hi, this is Tom Metama with the Rally for Rangers Foundation, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Ah!